Well, let's jump into our passage today. We're in Romans. We've been going through the Romans, the book of Romans, at the beginning of this year. Uh, and we're now in chapter 4. So go ahead and grab your Bible. Open up to it. The, the scriptures will be up behind me here. But I want to encourage you to have your Bibles with you. Uh, you can grab a pew Bible in front of you. Turn to page 941 if that's helpful. But that way you can, you can look through the passage. You can look at the passages before, see how they relate. Uh, you can kind of feed yourself, in a sense, the truth of God's word as I'm helping to open it before your eyes. Um, so today I want to set the stage. And let's start again. It's been two weeks since we've heard from the book of Romans. So I don't know about you, but my memory doesn't usually last that long. I can't say, what was that sermon about, you know, two weeks ago? Not usually. Um, So I want to kind of set the stage and start with this big picture idea. So imagine with me, 2,000 years ago today, Jesus was probably about 16 years old, learning to be a carpenter. And you think 2,000 years, that's that's something that's really hard to imagine, what 2,000 years is like. Now take that and double it. So 4,000 years, it's hard to imagine, but for 4,000 years, the people of Israel have to their core, identified who they are as the people of God. They're the people of God. I mean, this is in the core of their being, that they are the people of God, and and not the other nations, that God has chosen them. Even at the times when they were serving other gods, this is still in the background of who they believe that they are. And so now Paul is left to come against this and say, no, God has chosen to save the whole world through faith. You're no longer just the chosen people of God. God has opened this through what Jesus Christ did on the cross. God has opened salvation to the entire world. Paul is left with this burden to explain. And so that's what he's doing in the book of Romans. He's explaining this beautiful gospel. And so he starts in chapter one with his main point. And he's gonna wrap around to his main point today. So I wanna read that in In Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. We're going to see the importance of faith in everything that he is talking about in this letter. For it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. So we're going to come back to that today. But just to kind of sum up between there and here, um, he, he's putting all people in the same boat. And he, he does that first by saying that all people have fallen, well, he'll say that in chapter 3, fallen short of the glory of God. But all people have served the creature, the created things, and worshipped the created things, and not the one who created them. So all people, it doesn't matter who you are, where you've lived, all people have done this. And then he goes through to describe how the Jews have done this and how the Gentiles have done this. And again, in chapter three, he comes to this climactic statement of misery almost. Uh, all have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us make the mark on our own. All have fallen short. And then, if you remember on Easter Sunday, we heard Paul's explanation of where he's going. That it's by faith that we are saved. It's by faith that we receive the righteousness of God. And so today we pick up in chapter 4, which is a, a key point in Paul's argument. That by 
faith alone we gain righteousness. Uh, so here he kind of transitions. He's talking to the Jews um, just real quickly to say, Abraham was given righteousness by faith. David, the, these Old Testament figures that are so huge in your faith, these people were even saved by faith. Contrary to what you believe, God has always worked this way. And so, let's jump into the passage. Romans 4, beginning in verse 1, says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified or made right before God by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works. His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And he quotes from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. Verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or was it after he was circumcised? It wasn't after, but it was before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Woo! That's quite a passage. <laughs> I don't know how you're feeling right now. It may be much like I was feeling when I first read this, like, wow, Paul, like, pick a point and just go with it, you know? Like, where are you going with this? I um, feel like the ideas are just all over the place. But after studying this passage a little bit, what Paul does here is, is so brilliant. It's, it's genius the way that he argues righteousness by faith alone. And so I want to kind of walk with you through this text so that we can see what Paul is actually saying here. Um, now, hopefully, all of you would say that um, you've grown up with this idea in your mind, that salvation is through faith in Christ alone. Okay, just by show of hands, how many of you um, would say that you have grown up in a church, when you were a kid, that taught this regularly, through faith alone? Good, most of us in here, most of us in here. Uh, maybe not all. And just out of curiosity, for those who have been a part of this church for a very long time, would you say that that was the teaching of this church primarily, week by week, for a long time? Hopefully primarily. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, this, for those of us that have this as a foundation of what we believe, I hope today that you will walk through me, with me through this passage so that we can see the depths of what Paul is trying to say here. So that you can see more clearly the depth of what Paul is trying to say here. And that you can articulate it to those who don't believe this. To those who don't live their lives by faith, but by works. 
And for those of you who haven't quite sold into this idea completely, I, I pray that you would walk with me as well because there are so many people who don't see salvation in this way. All right, so one last bit of context that will help us understand this passage as we go through it. First, again, Paul is writing to the Romans. It's mostly a Gentile audience, but there's a few Jews. And so he really wants to to combat this Jewish concept in this passage. And that's what he's doing. And that's, I think, one reason why it's so quick. It's so condensed in what he's doing, because he really wants to get on to the more important points of the gospel. These these things are burning in his mind. He's like, okay, I've got to get this out of the way first before I can really speak about the truth of the gospel. And so I think that's why he uses this really condensed language. But um, I want to give an illustration that I think will help us understand this passage a little bit better. See, we've grown up with the idea that there are faith and there are works. Faith on one hand and works on the other hand. And we are saved by faith and then the works follow. That's the sanctification, us becoming like God. See, that's the idea that we've grown up in. But again, the Jews haven't grown up with this idea. This is not what they're thinking at all. See, they live by works. And for purposes of this, understanding this text, I'm going to use a coin. A coin of works. And they believe two things that we don't. On one side, they believe that faith is a work. That faith is one of many works. Uh, and when you first hear that, you're thinking, that sounds crazy. Because we've grown up understanding faith and works are separate. But if you think about it from a human perspective, faith seems like something we do. Right? You know, we believe. We choose to believe in God. It seems like something that we do. Therefore, it would be considered a work. Does that kind of make sense? Well, but so from a human perspective, it could make sense. Faith is just one of many works that makes us right before God. It gives us righteousness. On the other side of this coin is that obedience to the law, obedience to the things that God has said in the law, the Old Testament, makes us right before God. So that involves sacrificing the lamb, all that to cover our sins, because there is that part. They understand that. But they're saying that it's obedience to the law that makes us right with God. So that's the coin of works that they're believing. One side, that faith is a work, and the other side, that obedience to the law saves them. Are you all tracking with me so far? Okay. So this is what Paul is going to quickly go against. Uh, And as we go through this, these ideas, they haven't gone away. There are still a lot of people that you work with that believe this. Uh, Mainly, we think of Mormons and Catholics. They kind of fall under this category of believing that it's more so by works, that faith is a work in which we are made right before God. And so follow with me, track with me through this passage as we see what Paul has to say. Verse 1 says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? So right out of the gate, he's saying, think of things from Abraham's perspective. Would Abraham have said, yeah, I'm made right before God because of the things that I do? Would Abraham have said that? Or would he have more so said, I do what I do because I believe in who God is and what he has said? So right out of the gate, he's saying, think of things from Abraham's perspective. Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. 
So track me on this one. Paul isn't saying in this passage that Abraham does have something to boast about before men. That's not what he's saying. He's basically setting it up and saying, well, if, Paul, if Abraham is justified by his works, then he would have something to boast about. And then he's cutting it down and saying, no, nobody can boast before God. That doesn't make any sense. That's foolishness. Nobody can boast before God. And then he quickly goes on to quoting their scriptures, to quoting what they hold so closely to. In verse 3, he says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, now this isn't a random passage that Paul pulls from the Old Testament. This is something that is very familiar to the Jews. This is something that's foundational in who Abraham was in changing from Abraham or Abram to Abraham. This is the first time that God actually came to Abram in a vision. And so they, they definitely would have known this passage. We kind of set up the context of this passage because this, when Paul says this, all of this stuff is coming up in the Jews' mind. They're, they're understanding the whole context of this particular passage from the Old Testament. It comes from Genesis 14 and 15. In Genesis 14, there's this great battle. There are five Israelite armies that meet in this valley of four enemy armies. These four enemy armies come and, and basically overthrow the five armies. They're, they're running them out of the valley and they're going and plundering all of their stuff. Abram hears about this and he gathers up 318 of his own trained men born in his house and he pursues and destroys the four armies, getting back the plunder, taking it back to the people of Israel. That's pretty good. But God was on his side, right? So God always wins. So Melchizedek then blesses Abram, and then the Lord comes to Abram in a vision, and he says this to him, fear not, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Now, what immediately pops up in Abram's mind is, my reward, I mean, I'm getting old. When you die, everything, everything's gone. You know, like, there's, there's really no point in having stuff. So he says, what could you give me? I have no heir of my own. I have no child. And God says, you will have a son. You will have a child. And he takes him outside and shows him the stars. Now, this is before electric lights were there. So, I mean... Just imagine, this is not the Louisville skyline. <laughs> Count the stars. One, two, oh yeah. This is, this is like the darkness in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Count the stars. And he says, your offspring will be as numerous as these. And then we find this passage. Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul still understands, though, that the Jews consider faith, and have always considered faith, to be a work, to be a part of works. And so he goes on to give an illustration. He says this, now to the one who works. His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So he's saying, are you merely an employee of God, where you work, and in return, it's your right that God owes you righteousness? Your wage is right. I mean, it's ridiculous to say that God would owe us anything. That's what Paul is saying here. He says, no, this isn't the way it works. He uses the word gift here to point them back to what he just said at the end of chapter 3, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no way we can work enough 
to get there, and that all are justified by grace as a gift, not as a wage, for the merit of our faith. You know, this is the same reason that Jesus condemns the motives of the Pharisees. Because what faith they had, they considered it to be a work. Like many of our jobs, you know, it produces this, this overflowing joy in us, right? The jobs that we go to. It's like for a wage. You say, that's what the faith of the Pharisees is like. You know, about a clock in, another day working for God. You know, so I don't go to hell, basically. At my, my 401k righteousness meter, you know, Getting kind of low. Getting kind of low. So I gotta bump that back up. If it goes below this line when I die, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about it. Get back to work. Back to work. No, faith is not a work that acquires heartless employees seeking payment. It's not what's going on. Paul continues to make it clear that Abraham did not perform some great work of merit, but he simply trusted God. Verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, it's tempting to look at this verse and say, Paul, thank you. I love to be lazy. I mean, you have just given me scriptural backing for my laziness. You know, is that, is that what Paul is saying here? Is he condoning laziness? No, no. There's a shift here that we don't see as clearly in the English between the word work. So in verse 4, work is talking about a job done for a wage. But now in verse 5, work is talking about things done to gain merit before God. There's this shift that we don't automatically see. So the contrast isn't those who work and those who don't work. The contrast is those who trust in works and those who trust in God. Important contrast. Some have also used this passage to say that faith is now divorced from work, that we don't have to work, that you can have faith and no fruit and still have true faith. Now, they may not preach that from the pulpit, but many of us, we like to believe that, right? We can have faith and then just live however we want, right? And we still have faith that brings us righteousness. That, that's not what Paul is saying here either. We can think back to the end of chapter 3 where he said, we don't overthrow the law by our faith. No, we uphold it by our faith. That's what he says at the end of chapter 3 right before this. So again, Paul isn't putting that forward. What Paul is trying to do is he's trying to take faith in their mind and pull it out from underneath the umbrella of works. He's trying to pull it out over here saying, no, it's only by faith that we are saved. Only by faith. Do you begin to see how crucially important it is to understand that faith is not initially or primarily something that we do? That faith is not initially or primarily something that we do. We merely respond to God's grace in belief, in faith. Now, when you receive a gift, I don't know any of you ever thought of it this way, but imagine there's this gift here. Here, Katie. So, so you, you've spent a whole lot of time. You've put this gift together. You, you've made kind of stained glass. You know that I like stained glass type stuff. And so you've just spent a lot of time putting that together and crafting it uh, so that you could give it to me as a gift, right? Now, how many of you, when you're receiving a gift, here, go ahead and give it to me as a gift. 
Wait, wait. Before I take it, are you so worthy to be giving a gift? Can I trust you? I don't know. I guess. Okay. Thank you. Can you imagine all the work that went into receiving that gift? I mean, I had to imagine whether he was somebody that was worthy to give me a gift. I mean, I had to actually lift my arm and take the gift out of his hand. And it was kind of, it's kind of heavy, you know? Like, that's a lot of work. In such a way that the one who gave the gift would be like, wow, you, you have done a lot to receive that gift. You know, I should, I should reward you for receiving that gift. It, Paul is saying, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to believe that just simply receiving by faith God's grace should merit us anything. It just doesn't make sense. And so we come back to our coin. On one side, we're saying that faith is a work. Faith is a work. By faith, which is a work, righteousness is counted. And on the other side, they're saying by obedience, which is a work, they are forgiven of their sins. So Paul is tearing this down. So, again, Paul is pulling faith out from underneath the umbrella of works. Now let's look at the other side of the coin. What does Paul do to tear down this idea that obedience, which is a work, gains us forgiveness of sins? He looks at David. He says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Then he quotes Psalm 32, and he says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. What he is saying here is, so you've done some good deeds, right? And you're you're believing that those good deeds gain you some kind of righteousness. But don't forget, you don't only do good deeds. You do some pretty bad ones too. And those bad deeds, those lawless deeds, come with a wage of their own. I don't want to jump too far ahead, but in chapter 6, he says, for the wages of sin is... Exactly. The wages of sin is death. See, he's saying it's by God's grace alone that our sins are covered. Not because of what we do. The Jews would have also known this famous psalm of David, but they would have interpreted it in this way. They would have thought, blessed are the Jews who abide your obedience again, abide by the sacrificial system of the law and by their obedience receive forgiveness of their sin. That's how they would have interpreted this passage. But again, Paul is pointing them saying, think like David. Is this what David is really thinking here? So he's tearing down both sides of this coin of works, saying it's not by faith, or faith isn't a work, it's, it's by faith alone. And it's not by our obedience to the law that we're forgiven of sins. See, Paul, he's taking this theological coin of works and he's crushing it into a blue. He's saying, faith. You gotta stay, you gotta stay awake. You gotta stay focused here. Faith, saying that it's through faith alone that we receive righteousness from God to make us pure. It's through faith alone that we receive the forgiveness of sins to save us from wrath. This reminds me of the song, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to 
thy cross I cling. Going to another part, he says, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure to save from wrath and make me pure. This is what faith has done for all people. And so Paul continues to break down this idea. And he's going to continue uh, because the, the Jews are thinking it's, it's us within the Jews. You know, we, by the obedience, uh, it's just us that receives the forgiveness of sins. Paul's now going to take it and show how faith extends to all people through Jesus Christ. Verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It wasn't after. And just so you get it, it was before. That's what he says. When I first read this, I thought, now wait a minute. Wasn't Abraham circumcised on the eighth day like a good Jew? And then I had to look it up and I was like, well, no. Actually, at the spry young age of 99, Abraham was the first to be circumcised. And this was after he had Isaac as his son. See, we can't say that God is not gracious and good in all of his works. This is when Abraham started. So this faith passage happens long before. Especially where it says that faith was given to Abraham, uh, that righteousness was given to Abraham because of his faith. It was long before he was circumcised. So this is Paul's point. He says in verse 11, He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. A sign of the faith that he had, a sign of the righteousness that he received. Does that sound like anything that we have today? Like baptism? A sign of the faith in which we have. So it just points to it. It doesn't actually save. That's what he's saying. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. So all those outside of the Jewish system, this is the point, that Abraham would still be the father by faith. It's extended to all people. That's how it's always been. And then he gives them the challenge to the Jews and to make him the father of the circumcised, of you, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that your father Abraham had before he was circumcised. He's pointing to them and saying, no, you don't, you don't trust in your circumcision. You don't trust in your obedience to the law to be saved. No, you still live by faith. It's by faith that you are saved. These are all just signs and shadows of the truth. Salvation has never been about obedience to the law. It's about inward life of faith. This reminds me of a song. I'm sure you know it. It goes like this. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. Good, so let's all praise the Lord, right? So this is what Paul is saying. It's extended now to all people. We are sons of Abraham. Even the Jews can be sons of Abraham through faith. That's what he's saying. And it's a cool thing nowadays for music ministers to kind of change lyrics. And so it might go a little better like this at the end to say, so let's all live by faith. You know, that may be a little bit more accurate, but that's okay. This is a kid's song. And it's still original, I guess. All right. So let's focus in here on what, what, what the main point is he's saying. Paul is saying, you think that your faith is merely a work with which 
your wage is righteousness, and that those who do good deserve forgiveness. These thoughts make sense from our perspective. They really do. But seeing a glimpse of God's perspective, both Abraham and David knew that if they truly deserved anything, it was death. And they both understood that obedience to the law, circumcision, sacrificing of the lamb, was only a shadow of the genuine faith within that was counted as righteousness. And therefore, all who receive the gift of God by faith alone will be saved. So I hope that this phrase is a resounding phrase in your mind, that it's only by faith that we are saved. Faith in Christ alone. Faith in Christ, period. If you ever hear someone say, well, yes, you're saved by faith in Christ and baptism. You can stop. Faith in Christ and regular attendance at church. Faith in Christ and taking up the sacraments. Faith in Christ and... If there's an and, you can just say stop. No, it's only by faith in Christ alone. I mean, That's why we sing songs like in Christ alone. The solid rock, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So, why is this important? It may seem like a kind of a crazy question to ask. Oh, besides being the foundational way in which we understand our relationship with God in his saving work, besides that, and besides this being the distinguishing factor between Christianity and all other religions in the world that live by works to be made right before their believed God. Besides that, besides this being the catalytic truth that spurned the great reformation in the 1600s with Martin Luther from the Catholic Church, the Protestant Church, moving away in which we would not be a church. We would not be gathering here or any Protestant church around the world. Besides that, and besides it being the motivational force behind everything that we do as followers of Christ, it impacts our evangelism. Uh, Like I said, particularly Mormons and Catholics, this past week, Lizzie... Um, had some questions, yes. We met like this past week. She has some questions about purgatory. And if you think about it, why would Catholics believe in purgatory? So purgatory is you're working on this earth, right? You're trying, it's this righteousness meter. You're, you're trying to get good enough that, that God will forgive you of the rest, but you're still not fully sanctified. And so there's this place. If you die before you get there, you know, you have time still. You have time to, to get works all the way up to where then you can be in heaven, right? So much of what they believe is based on works and not on faith. And my sister-in-law felt like she was living in sin after um, she, she came back from being married. And because she wasn't married in the Catholic Church by a Catholic priest, she couldn't take in the sacraments. And so she felt like she was literally losing her salvation by living with her husband. So they had to get married in the Catholic Church for her conscience to be sealed that she could actually make it to heaven. It's, it's by works and not by faith. Paul tears this argument down. At first, when I was talking to Lizzie, I thought, you know, there was probably some corrupt pope at one time that was like, I, I don't know how we're going to get these people to do stuff. We need to, we need to make works a part of salvation, otherwise they're just going to be like, oh, I got faith, and then do nothing, right? I, I, at first, that's what I thought. After studying this passage, 
I realized how much the Catholics pull from Old Testament ideas. Even the idea of a priest, they pull that from the Old Testament. No, Christ is our priest. Um, and it only makes sense that they pull this idea too, that faith is a work. And so it's by these works that we are saved. So it impacts our evangelism. Because it's not only Jews that believed this, and it's not only Jews that we work with and talk with. All right. So before we really close things up here, I have one quote from Martin Luther, because this is the great reformer in the 1600s. Uh, he said this. I'm doing on time. That's important. Anybody? Time? Time? Oh. Okay. All right. Martin Luther. This is what he says about this concept of faith. Listen to this. This is genius. The question is asked, how can justification take place without the works of the law? Even though James says, faith without works is dead. In answer, the apostle distinguishes between law and faith, the letter and grace. The works of the law are works done without faith and grace by the law, which forces them to be done through fear or the enticing promise of temporal advantage. But works of faith are those done in the spirit of liberty, purely out of love to God. And they can be done only by those who are justified by faith. An ape can cleverly imitate the actions of a human, but he is not therefore a human. If he became a human, it would undoubtedly not be by virtue of the works by which he imitated man, but by virtue of something else, namely by an act of God. Then, having been made a human, he would perform the works of humans in proper fashion. Paul does not say that faith is without its characteristic works, but that it justifies without the works of the law. Therefore, justification does not require the works of the law, but it does require living faith, which performs its works. It's a subtle difference, but it's foundational to everything that we do. This is how Jesus says this powerful warning. He says that there will be those who come to me in the end and say, Lord, Lord, we did all these things in your name. We, we performed miracles and wonders in your name. And Jesus will say to them, Depart, I never knew you. Wow. This, this is even a stark warning for us. We have this tendency, even in our own service, to fall back into this idea of works, of, of living by works, being saved. By works. So what's the danger of the opposite side of that? There's this pendulum that, that kind of swings in our mind. Living by works. What's the opposite danger? That we would say, Christ has saved me. I can do whatever I want. Not doing so in order to keep our own minds in balance in this, we need to regularly be reminding one another, regularly be gazing upon the beautiful gospel, gazing upon the grace of God that is a gift. One last illustration. Uh, I gave you a gift. Imagine that I gave something, and it was, like, it was like a white elephant gift. You know, one of those things you get at a party, and I wasn't really thinking of you, but I just kind of brought it. I thought it could be a good thing. we pass them around, you know, and you're like, oh, this is nice. So your response to the gift would be based upon the, the value of the gift itself, 
right? So imagine I gave you something. I had you in mind. I saw this, this, you know, this set of mugs, and they're so nice. I thought you'd really like them. Colors, you know, that match your kitchen and all that kind of stuff. Like, your response might be a little bit more, thank you so much. You know, I really like these. Each time you use the mugs, you might think of, you know, the person that gave them to you. Or you can even imagine a perfectly crafted gift. One that you didn't even know existed, but had all of your own interests and hobbies in mind. You know, you'd be like, oh my goodness, I didn't even know that you knew this about me. I didn't even know that you cared about me that much. You know, like, you would begin to think about the person who gave the gift. So it's based on the value of the gift. Now imagine I gave you a new car. Woo, a new car, you know. And I told you that I was going to pay for the taxes on that car and your insurance. Because, I mean, that's going to skyrocket. It's a new car. It's a really fancy car. So I'll pay for that, too. You know, so you don't have to worry about any of that. You know, you can imagine this price is right kind of response. You know, a new car. You know, they go crazy. And you're like, you know, this. So the response to the gift is based upon the value of the gift itself. All of these gifts pale in comparison to the gift of God's eternal grace. Crafted for you specifically in your needs, even in your desires. And it's a gift that you could never have acquired on your own. And so the response should be based upon the value of the gift. May we be people that remind one another of that value. So works will never save. Faith is not a work. Works display faith. Most simply said, faith works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We gaze upon your beautiful grace, Father, and We pray, Father, that it would well up within us with this living faith, Father, not that we would respond, not that we would work for our salvation, but, Father, that we would respond in love for who you are and what it is that you have given us. Father, I pray that today, uh, as we gaze upon this, as we gaze upon this weekly, as we come together to remember the beautiful gospel, that we would respond in faith. We would respond with fruit in our lives because of the joy of what you have done. We pray all of this.